Hey, it's finally here, season four of The Deep End. I am so excited. It's Tuesday night, and I'm so happy to be here with you, whether you're watching on Facebook, YouTube. Uh, we got some new platforms, a, a new content, a new direction for the, the season, and a new set behind me with a new logo for this podcast. I'm excited. I hope you're excited. Welcome to your favorite night of the week. This is The Deep End. Welcome, welcome, welcome back. Welcome back. I am so excited. I, I know I've said it like three times, but I'm so excited. It's been too long, right? Every year we take this little hiatus from September, uh, from August into September. And, you know, we just kind of recalibrate. And, and the team did a great job putting this set behind me. I don't know if we can get a wide angle on this, get another angle on this set behind me. But it's been uh, a lot of hard work here to put this together. Um, and then we've got this new logo right here. It's the Deep End logo. <laughs> we went full on, full beard. Yeah. That's how it is. And then we've got something else. Uh, we've got some new social media uh, connections. So this is really exciting. We've got the old guard. We've got the deep end on Facebook. We've got the deep end on Twitter. We've got the deep end on Instagram and YouTube. Uh, but now we're also on Periscope and Twitch. So if you are into Twitch, which, you know, 14-year-old to 25-year-old boys are all over Twitch playing video games and recording themselves doing it, but we're going there with the content of the Bible. How cool is that? We're taking the Bible to where they play video games. So they'll hopefully blow some people up, some fake pixel people up on one moment and then read and hear the Bible at another moment. We're going to go where people are, right? So we're so glad to bring in a Twitch audience. Hello, Twitch. So subscribe, please, at youtube.com slash TV. Like the video, thumbs, it, thumbs up, and make sure you subscribe and hit the notification bell to make sure that you are always notified of when we go live. If you're on Twitch, you can do the follow thing and you'll know when we go live. And Facebook as well. Like the page, help us out, spread the word, and if you like the content, share it on your social media pages. David, the greatest king in the Old Testament, was also at one point a private worship leader and then a very public worship leader. And God used his musical ability to eventually lead him to the leadership of Israel and he changed the world. So what a great translation transition as we go from New Testament content for the first time to Old Testament content on the deep end as we get into the life of David. The Deep End with Tim Hatch is made possible by contributions from listeners and viewers like you. If you would like to partner with us to support this ministry, you can go to thedeepend.tv forward slash partner or on the Cash App with cash tag the deep end TV. Uh, that that thunder crop clap was really loud in my ears right there. <laughs> anyway, here we go. Season four, working out the kings. The title of this episode is A King Like All the Other Nations. A King Like All the Other Nations. Ladies and gentlemen, today we begin a journey talking about a guy named David, talking about the king of the, 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 the king that, according to the Jewish people, is still the king of kings. He's the greatest king in Israel's history. He's the one who slayed Goliath. He is the one who led Israel to the pinnacle of success around 900 to 1,000 BC. And why are we talking about David? Do you know why we're talking about David? Because this story is our story. You're going to see so many relevant topics coming through the story of David to our present generation. It's going to blow your mind. 
Uh, even the fact that there is this idea of a need for a king, right? We, we still need a king. We still need someone to lead us. I know we don't think so because we're westernized, enlightened, high, highly uh, emotional and intellectual individuals, but we still need someone to lead us. And hey, it's the fall. It's 2020. It's that four-year you know, chaotic season, every four-year chaotic season in our country here in America where we literally flip out over who's going to get elected president in November. And so right now, the nation that we live in is in the process of choosing for itself a king. And if you've been on Facebook for about 2.3 seconds, you know how nasty it can get when it comes to the presidential election. We're going to discuss that. We're going to talk about why this season of the deep end might be so more so important for you to navigate these election season waters with some biblical understanding of the human condition, of what we really need, and what God is doing. So, I've titled this episode, A King Like All the, Na- All the Other Nations. Well, why do I call it that? Because those were the words from the lips of ancient Israel. If you remember, they once said this to a guy named Samuel. 1 Samuel chapter 8, verse 5. They said these words to Samuel the judge and prophet. Now appoint for us a king to judge us like all the nations. Israel wanted a king. They came to a point and they said, listen, we are done with the status quo. We are done with you, Samuel. Imagine being Samuel in this situation. He had faithfully led Israel for many, many decades. And now they're like, all right, we're done with you. Give us a king. We want someone to, king, to lead us. And then notice the language, like all the nations. We want a king like them. And this is what Israel's problem was. They had an inferiority complex. They looked at the world around them. They said, hey, we're going to be like them. How many Christians do the exact same thing still today? I want to be just like them. I want to have a life like them. I want to look like them. I want to feel like them. I want to be like them. I want to be celebrated. I want to be popular. I want to be famous. I want to be rich. I want to be successful. I want to be powerful, whatever it is. Israel's story is our story. And God answers their request. He actually does give them a king like all the nations. He gives them, not David, First, he gives them Saul. And we're going to first explore the relevant contextual information, the relevant contextual time in which David becomes king of Israel. Because before we just jump into his story, we need to know the history of Israel and what got them to this moment. Because here is what's going to happen for them as a people. God is going to answer the request. He's going to give them King Saul. And then under the auspices of Saul's very negative kingdom, very oppressive kingdom, God raises up his anointed King David. And I want to make this point. There is the king that you want, and then there is the king that you need. The king that you want, and then there's the king that you need. So let's do some backtracking. Let's let's rewind in the Old Testament. Let's go through what I would like to call a brief history of Israel, okay? I'm going to just run this down. A brief history of Israel, not a brief history of the Old Testament because the Old Testament doesn't start with Israel. It starts with creation and then Adam and then mankind and then the nations. And remember the Tower of Babel. And they come together and they try to make a name for themselves and God comes down and confuses their language and people just scatter out of the cities. By the way, that's what's happening right now because of coronavirus and all the, uh, the, all the um, 
the, 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 the shutdown laws and restrictions they put on people's lives, all these cities are flooding with people out of the cities because they don't want to be restricted anymore. You come to the city for free, fame and freedom, and then when the freedom and the fame go away, you flood out of the city. And the exact same thing that happened in Genesis chapter 11 is happening again right here in modern day. People are flooding out of the cities because they want freedom. And maybe God is using coronavirus to spread us out because we're supposed to spread out. I don't know if you know that. From Genesis chapter 9, God said to Noah, now spread out and fill the earth. Don't make a name for yourself. Glorify me in the earth. And so now we are kind of in that same setting, aren't we? And God comes and in the table of nations, he finds one family, right? One man. What's his name? His name is Abraham. And he is the father of the patriarchs. And the patriarch story, the, the story of Israel starts in Genesis chapter 12 when God says to a guy named Abram, Leave your father and your mother and your nation and all the people that you know and go to the land that I will show you. And then his family has one disaster after another. There's Abraham, there's Isaac, there's Jacob. Jacob has four women through which he has 12 sons. The 12 sons hate and, and try to kill each other. And then Joseph, the chosen son, goes down into Egypt and he rescues all the nations by providing grain during the famine and yada, yada, yada. But eventually Joseph dies and then the people of Israel become slaves in Egypt. That's Exodus chapter 1 through 5. They're slaves for 400 years, and we don't hear much, actually, for 400 years in the Bible. They're just moaning and groaning. Some theologians believe they just kind of fit in with Egypt. I mean, they might have been slaves, but they just kind of got used to it. But eventually, they're groaning, and their cries go up to God, and he sends them a deliverer, and that deliverer's name is Moses. And Moses is called reluctantly by God. He re Not reluctantly called by God, but he reluctantly answers God's call to go from the prince status in Egypt to deliverance status, deliverer status, and rescue the people of Israel. And he rescues the people of Israel with 10 plagues, the last of which kills the firstborn sons of all of Egypt and even the firstborn son of Pharaoh. And through the death of the firstborn son, God's people are what? Set free. The story is pointing to something bigger than itself. Are you following what I'm saying? And then after the deliverance, there's wanderings through the wilderness. This is a very sad time in Israel's history because God did not mean for them to spend 40 years in the wilderness, but they refused to believe him for the promises. And so they wander. They don't think that they can defeat the nations of the promised land. So they wander for 40 years in the wilderness, testing God, doubting God, arguing with God. And God finally gets fed up with that generation. He says, okay, fine, if you won't believe me, I will raise up a new generation from your children who will go into the promised land and fulfill my promises. And those eventually, you know, they get through the promised land. God gives them the law in Exodus, Leviticus, and Deuteronomy. And then eventually they transition to a new generation in Numbers. And then finally, the nation goes in. They take possession of the land. Jo Joshua, whose namesake is actually Jesus. He is Yeshua leads them triumphantly, militarily, and through conquest into the promised land. And you would think, okay, finally, they're, they're in the promised land. They realize the promises of God. All, all is well, right? Nope. What happens in the book of Judges right after Joshua? Joshua passes away, and they do everything Joshua tells them not to do. <laughs> they worship the nations around them. They stop fighting. They stop making war. They start adapting to the nations. around. They start practicing the pagan rituals of the Ammonites and the Amorites and the Moabites and the Jebusites and all the other ites that are out there around the promised land. And eventually the nation deteriorates spiritually so much so that there are some seriously bad stories at the end of Judges. Hey, 
If you think that American cinema produces some pretty sick horror films, you should read Judges, <laughs> especially the last four chapters of Judges. Those stories will freak you out. There's a story of a guy who has a concubine, and he's visiting uh, a friend in another city. Well, actually, he's a stranger in the city, and they, they, they say, don't stay out in the, in, the, in, the, in the city square. It's dangerous out there. So they bring him into his house, and the people come to to have sex with this stranger from out of town, and he gives them the concubine. <laughs> He's like, don't have sex with me. Here's my concubine. Throws her out in the street. They have sex with her all night, and then they kill her, basically. It's this horrible story. And what does he do with the, with the concubine when he finds her dead in the morning? He kind of like kicks her to see that she's dead. This is in the Bible. He chops her up into 12 pieces and sends the 12 pieces of this woman's body to the 12 nations, 12 tribes of Israel to say, look what happened in Benjamin, in the tribe of Benjamin. And in this horrible story... That would make for a fitting um, script in a Hollywood film is actually in Judges chapter 19. That and other stories are meant to show us that as Israel starts to follow the nations around them, Israel pays the price by becoming the nations around them. Deteriorated. Not the light of the world. Rather living in darkness. Well, the book of Judges ends with a, a very familiar refrain. Maybe you've heard it. Here's how the book of Judges ends, and it's very important that we get this so that we understand the context through which God chooses to raise up his chosen king, David. Judges chapter 17, verse 6 says this, In those days there was no king in Israel. And look at this refrain. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. And then it tells us a horrible story of how evil uh, the people of Israel had, be had become in the time of Judges. Well, guess what? It's said again in Judges 21, 25. It's repeated. The very exact same phrase is repeated. In those days, there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. See, when the Bible repeats a line, when the, when the Bible repeats a sentence, it's intentional. They're trying to tell you that there's a problem. And the problem is there's no king. And because there's no king, everybody's just doing whatever they think or feel is right. Are we not, ladies and gentlemen, in the exact same state today? There is no king. No, we have a president, and we have this presidential election, and we have this chaotic kind of self-centered uh, me-first-ism in America. Nobody's going to tell me what to do. I'm going to tell what myself what to do. I'm going to do what feels right. I'm going to do what's right in my own eyes. I mean, this is, this is very relevant, right, to where we are today, and this is where Israel found themselves at the end of the book of Judges. And then another time it says that in Judges chapter 18, verse 1, listen to this. It says, in those days there was no king in Israel. And in those days, the tribe of the people of Dan was seeking for itself an inheritance to dwell in, for until then, no inheritance among the tribes of Israel had fallen to them. So Dan starts to seek its own glory and its own fame because they felt ripped off. In those days, there was no king in Israel. And then Judges chapter 19, verse 1 says the same thing again. In those days, when there was no king in Israel. And then it tells the story about a certain Levite who was sojourning in remote parts of the hill country of Ephraim who took for himself a concubine from Bethlehem and Judah. I mean, this is all immorality. It's sexual morality. It's religious idolatry. It's fornication. It's lies. It's stealing. And, and it's murder. And it's, it's, and it's disgusting horror movie stuff that's happening in the Bible. And it's not there for our entertainment. It's there for our information to help teach us about what? The human condition. Because Israel's story is our story. And there's no king in Israel. And the people of Israel are going crazy. They're getting really bad. Treating each other terribly. 
fighting amongst themselves. In fact, there's civil war that breaks out between the tribe of Benjamin and the other 11 tribes. And, and this is the fruit of what they did in the beginning of the book of Judges. They stopped fighting God's fight and started adapting to who? All the nations around them. You know, this is so important for us as Christians to remember is that we're not called to be like the world. This is what Jesus said in, the, in his high priestly prayer in John chapter 17. They are not of the world even as I am not of the world. And yet he prays, Father, I, take, I, pray, I don't pray that you take them out of the world, but that you keep them from the evil one, that you protect them from the influences of the world. And Christian, this is what Scripture is teaching us, that as God's people, we are called to be distinct and different. We march to the beat of the proverbial different drummer, the divine drummer, Jesus Christ. We do not seek to become like the peoples around us. No, Christians, this is what we do. We take pride in that we are the God. We are, we are called by the God of heaven to be different and different on purpose. But here's the point that the end of Judges is making, and I hope you catch it. The point is Israel needs a king. Israel needs a king because everyone's doing their own thing and going crazy and destroying and hurting each other. The nation needed a king who would lead them righteously and faithfully. Israel needs a king that will unite them to do what the Lord wants them to do and not what they think they should do. This theme is intentional. It speaks to our present human condition. Israel needs a king, and so do we. So we come to this great transition at the end of the book of Judges, and there's this little book called Ruth, which we could probably get into at some point in this, in this season of the deep end, but we will skip it for now. And we transition into the book of 1 Samuel, which we'll talk about a final judge in Israel named Samuel. He's not just a judge, but he's a prophet. And he becomes a transitionary figure that God will use to raise up a holy, righteous kingdom in Israel. Well, Samuel, long before all that happens, Samuel does lead the nation very righteously. I mean, uh, Samuel starts with this uh, idolatrous, corrupt priesthood system under a guy named Eli. Eli's sons are eating the fattened portions of the sacrifices of Israel, and they're sleeping with women in the temple. <laughs> it's like stuff that people would get arrested for in churches today. They're just doing it. They're, so, they're, so they're becoming financially corrupt, and they're becoming sexually corrupt in the temple, the temple that was supposed to be the place where God dwells. And, and this nation is corrupt because even the, the people that should be leading them to God are, are the most morally corrupt among them. And God says, I've left this nation. I've, 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 I've abandoned this people. They, they have abandoned me, so I'm leaving them. And God raises up right under Eli's nose a young boy named Samuel whose mother prayed for him to be born that she would give him into God's purposes. And so Samuel is born and he's a righteous son and he's a righteous man and he grows up in the temple and he loves God and he serves God. And he becomes the arbiter of Israel, the judge of Israel. But there becomes this, un but there's another problem. Samuel does not rightly lead his own family and his own sons eventually start to abandon the principles of Israel and the principles of their own father. And we see that happening even in our generation. And so here's what happens in 1 Samuel chapter 8. The judges fail. Samuel himself fails. And here's what it says. 1 Samuel 8 verse 1. When Samuel became old, he made his sons judges over Israel. The name of the firstborn was Joel, the second Abijah. They were judges in Beersheba. Yet his sons did not walk in his ways but turned aside again after gain. 
They took bribes and perverted justice. And then all the elders of Israel gathered together and came to Samuel at Ramah and said to him, Behold, you are old and your sons do not walk in your ways. Now appoint for us a king to judge us like all the nations. The key term there I want you to see is like all the nations. Give us a king like those nations have. But the thing displeased Samuel when they said, give us a king to judge us. And then look what it says. And Samuel prayed to the Lord. This is verse 6 and verse 7. And the Lord said to Samuel, Obey the voice of the people in all that they say to you, for they have not rejected you, but they have rejected me from being king over them. Their rejection and asking for a king like all the, all the nations was actually a rejection of God, God says. Verse 8, According to all the deeds that they have done from the day I brought them up out of Egypt, even to this day, forsaking me and serving other gods, so they are also doing to you. Now then, obey their voice, and only you shall solemnly warn them and show them the ways of the king who shall reign over them. So in sum, here's where we are. Israel, though called by God, though chosen to be his chosen nation, his selected nation, his priestly nation, their history is replete with dark times of abandoning God, running away from his commandments, abdicating their role in the world, and worshiping the idols and the, and the gods of the nations around them. Their, judge, their judges failed. Their priests failed. Their leaders failed. They failed, and in their failure, they see the problem. They see the plight, and they imagine the answer. They imagine that the answer to their problems is a king like all the nations. Note that. They imagine that the answer to their problems is to have a leader like all the other nations around them. This is kind of where we are as a nation in America. This is kind of where we are as a church in America. We need someone to fix this. We need someone to take us out of this situation and into the next. We need someone to fix the coronavirus crisis. We need somebody to fix the economic crisis. We need somebody to fix the China threat crisis or the, uh, the loneliness crisis or, or whatever you want to say. See, Israel's, king, Israel's problem that they need a king is our problem. Here's the point. We need a king. We need a king. We need a righteous king. An interesting happened in 2010. The BBC did a global survey every year, still does to this day. Global survey, what's the number one problem with the world? And they ask all kinds of people from all walks of life. And in 2010, for the first time in the history of the survey, 2010, the biggest problem facing the world was no longer poverty or the environment. Those were relegated to number two, number three. Guess what was number one? For the first time in the, in the history of the survey, the problem was governmental corruption. 2010, people said the problem with the world, the number one problem with the world is our leaders have failed us. Our leaders are corrupt. And yet, here we are 10 years later, and we still think that a different leader or this leader or that leader will fix our problems. See, we fail to understand that the problem with the human condition is the human condition. The problem with the global world is the people. And I'm not saying that we're always to blame for every problem that's ever been in the world. What I am saying is that there is a problem and it is in us. Sadly, we fail to take the lesson of ancient Israel because we have determined that if we can just elect the right person to the right office, all of our problems will go away. 
And I'm telling you, this is a left and right issue in this country. It is not just a Republican issue, and it's not just a Democrat issue, and it's, it's not just a conservative issue or a liberal issue. It's a, it's a people issue. We, we've fallen into this trap, ladies and gentlemen. I don't know if you're watching the same country that I'm watching, but we're, we've fallen into this trap where we, we believe that if we can just elect the right person, we'll be saved. In fact, I've been alive for 44 years. I've seen enough presidential elections, and this one's got me a little bit alarmed because not that I think the republic is at stake. It's because we think the republic is at stake. <laughs> I, I've heard this term savior thrown around about the presidential election. Trump will save us from socialism. Biden will save us from the orange man. I mean, these are, the, these are the terms that you see thrown about on Facebook, right? Both sides. Both sides consider their guy the savior of the republic. Doesn't it kind of scare you a little bit, or concern you, shouldn't be scared, concern you a little bit that we see the president as a savior? I mean, this is one branch of a three-branched government. He really has no power to make laws. He is not your judge. He can't send you to jail, right? He can only execute the laws of the land. He can only execute the laws of the land. You still have the legislature and the judicial system. But for some reason, we have come to that same place Israel found themselves when their society deteriorated to such an extent that they were murdering each other, hating each other, and vilifying each other, and they determined that if they could only get a king that they wanted, a king that they wanted, all their problems would go away. So God, in his grace and in his mercy, says to Samuel, chapter 8 again, obey the voice of the people. Give them what they ask for. Now, why, going back to where we are as a country right now, and again, it's 2020, it's September 2020, why do we see the president as a savior at all? I mean, why, why should we see this? Well, first, because we do need a savior. That the Bible agrees with. That the scriptures they're with that. Yes, you need a savior. You don't need a political savior. You need a soul savior. There is something called evil in the world. We want to deny this through scientific discovery and education. And if we can only get people more educated, then they will stop being evil. But that's not true. There's still tons of evil, despite our higher levels of education. And we want to believe that if we can just put people in the right economic situation, then they'll be good people. But don't we then say at the same time that the evil people are the billionaire class, the one percenters or the one percents? So if money doesn't make people good and income doesn't make people good, what does make people good? Well, the answer is not presidents. The answer is not a king of your own choosing. And this is what Scripture is trying to teach us through the context in which David becomes king. That the people of Israel were asking for the king that they wanted. Give us the guy that I want. And I would challenge every Christian listening to me. Has your political alignment become like Israel's desire for a king in the ancient times before David? We need a king like that. No, 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 we need a king like that. We need the guy that we want. And if we get the guy we want, all of our problems will go away. I have some pretty alarming statistics to back up what I'm saying. Because I think that the growing irreligiousness of this country, the growing secularism of this country runs parallel with the growing levels of idolatrous hope we have put in political leadership. 
let me put this in simpler terms. The further we walk away from the foundations of Christian faith in this country, the more we walk into idolatrous political associations in this country, the more divided we become, the more hostile we become to each other, just like Israel was. They were at civil war at this time. They were ready to kill each other. Have you seen the news? Have you watched the riots? Have you seen the, pro the peaceful protests? Have you seen people burning down buildings and cars and businesses in the name of their political agenda? It's one of the great ironies of our time that in the name of justice, we are acting unjustly. In the name of seeking for a better life for some, we destroy the lives of others. This is where we are. This is what happens when a country spiritually deteriorates like Israel. Their story is our story. So let me put some charts up to just back up what I'm saying. This is actually quite interesting. Americans and their, uh, their commitment to Christianity, their, their practice of Christianity has dramatically shifted over the last 20 years. From 2000 to 2020, the share of practicing Christians has been cut in half in this country. The share of practicing, what do I mean by practicing? Going to church, reading their Bible, believing and living according to the scriptures. It's gone from about 45% to almost 24%. Meanwhile, the share of non-practicing Christians has risen by about 7 to 8%. Non-practicing Christians, meaning they don't go to Bible, they don't, they don't go to church, they don't read their Bible, and they don't really do anything that regard, that's in regards to Christian life. And then non-Christian, the share has grown exponentially. It's almost doubled itself. It's gone from about 20% to about 30%, grown by 50%. Over the last 20 years, from 2000 to 2020, this, these are the statistics of America's spiritual life. Now, you say, what does that matter? Why are you talking about that when it comes to political discourse? Because I believe, like I said, that the, the, the further we get away from Christian foundations, the more we get into political polarization and idolatry around who we elect as president. So I take you to this next graph. This graph here from a recent survey uh, has found out that more voters now say it really matters who wins the presidency than at any point in the last... 20 years. Is this coincidence? No. Let's just take a look at the stats. The red line here illustrates how many people believe it really matters who wins the presidential election. They do these surveys every four years. And you can see in the, in the election year 2000, about 50%, about half the country believe, you know, it really mattered who won, Bush or Gore. It jumped up to 67% in 2004, 63% in 08. Uh, say, stayed the same in 12, then in 16, it jumped to 74%, and now we're at 83%. 83% of Americans believe it is really important who wins the presidential election. And then the, the maybe more alarming stat here is over the last 20 years, the people who have said that things would be pretty much the same regardless of who was elected has gone from 44% down to 16%. Do you understand what these statistics are saying? They are saying that more than ever in the last 20 years, Americans have decided to put their hopes in who wins the presidency. This is political idolatry. <laughs> this is false worship. This is a false idol that has taken root in our country because we don't believe in God anymore. Because we don't go to church and remember that there's a God on the throne.
See, walking away from God has consequences, and the one who bears the consequences is not God. It's us. This is where we are. Parents, you need to have a conversation like this with your children. Teach them what's going on in the world because they're being taught. They're being taught, but they're not being taught biblical values. They're being taught that we are ruining the environment and humans are the problem. Now, I agree that humans are the problem, but it's not just the environment we're ruining. We're ruining ourselves. We're ruining our community. We're ruining brotherly, ki brother, brotherly kindness and neighborliness and love for one another. And so we have become increasingly polarized. Ask yourself this simple question. Do you think more than twice before you post something on Facebook now because you fear the argument, you fear the bullet-listed point of point and counterpoint between your friends? Do you get into these fights with people that you used to know now on social media? You don't have a you don't have a close-knit relationship with any with them anymore because of political ideology? This is bad. This is detrimental to who we are. And this is the fruit. This is the fruit of walking away from God so that we are in our day and age saying, whether we're on the right or on the left, give us a president who would judge us like all the nations. What side are you on? Maybe you're on the side of the left. More government intervention. Socialism, more for the poor. Spread the wealth out. Give us a president like and you've heard these arguments, like the European nations, like the socialized nations, the socialized medicine nations. Or maybe you're on the other side, the freedom, independence-loving people. Now give us, a give us a king who will stay out of our business, like the freedom-loving nations, or like this nation in the past. And both sides have their desire. They're both looking one way or the other for the king who will give them what they think they want. But here's the question the scripture is demanding we answer. Do we ever really know what we want? Because the king that they get is Saul. The king that they get is Saul. And here's why I say this. Because you got to be careful what you ask God for. He might give it to you. you got to be careful what you pray for. This is why John tells us how to pray. In 1 John chapter 5, verse 14, look what he says. This is the confidence that we have toward him. That if we ask anything according to his will, he hears it. Anything according to his will, what he wants. I don't know about you, but I want my prayers to align with what God wants for me. And we know, and if we know that he hears us in whatever we ask, we know that we have the request that we have asked of him. Here's my suggestion for you. You don't know what you ought to pray for. Neither do I. I know we pray for things, but maybe sometimes, like ha what happens here in ancient Israel, we get what we ask for, and then we regret that we got it. That's exactly the context in which David arrives because before there was David, there was Saul. Saul was the king that Israel got that would become just like the kings of the nations around them. They would abdicate their role as being a distinct and special people belonging to God and they would seek to be like the nations all around them. And I would say to you Christians, please, 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 if your political alignment becomes so strong that you have merged it and fused it with your Christian faith, watch out. You might have fallen for political idolatry yourself. In 1 Samuel chapter 13, Saul takes the throne. He becomes a powerful king. 
It looks like he's on the right track. He wins a battle against the Amorites. And then in 1 Samuel chapter 13, we see the cracks in his proverbial armor. 1 Samuel chapter 13, verse 5, And the Philistines mustered to fight with Israel 30,000 chariots and 6,000 horsemen and troops in the sand, like sand on the seashore in multitude. In other words, this is a big stinking army coming against Saul in the kingdom of Israel. They just made Saul king. They must be happy. They're going to win this battle. But look at the size of the Philistine army. They came up and they encamped in Michmash to the east of Beth-Avon, verse 6. And when the men of Israel saw that they were in trouble, for the people of heart were hard-pressed, the people hid themselves in caves and in holes and in rocks and in tombs and in cisterns. And some Hebrews crossed the fords of the Jordan to the land of Gad and Gilead. Saul was at Gilgal, and the people following him, and all the people following him, trembling. Saul sees the people are trembling. And look what it says in the next verse. This is very quick, very soon into Saul's kingship. Verse 8, it says, He waited seven days, the time appointed by Samuel, but Samuel did not come to Gilgal, and the people were scattering from him. Look what happens to Saul. He can't wait for, for, for God's appointed prophet to offer the sacrifices before they go into war because they're supposed to offer a sacrifice and then go into war. And it wasn't supposed to be the king who offered the sacrifice. It was supposed to be the prophet, the priest, Samuel. God invented this idea of, dis, of dis, distinguishing between king, prophet, and priest. They n- n- never was there to be one person functioning as all three. So Saul said in verse 9, bring the burnt offering here to me and the peace offerings. And he offered the burnt offering. Saul took the role of priest and he violated his role as king. Why did he do this? He did this because he cared about the people's opinion of him. See, sometimes in our political discourse, we've got to remember that the guy who's running for office is not actually running for office on principle. He's running for office on our opinions. He's giving us what we want. You know, political commentators talk about this after a speech. They'll say that was real red meat for his base or her base. He's giving them what they want. But do we ever really know what we want? This is America. This is where we are. This is why we have become so polarized as a country. In our days, there was no righteous king in America. Everyone did as he saw fit. This is the context in which David is raised up to be not the people's choice, but God's choice as king. You have the stress of Saul's kingship that he puts upon the people. He becomes increasingly insecure. This this story here in 1 Samuel 13 is just the beginning with Saul's kingdom. It's it's short-lived glory for poor old Saul. He's insecure. He's never satisfied. And then he starts blaming the people for his problems and the nation's problems. Doesn't that sound familiar? It's the people's fault. It's their fault. Man, our political leaders make money on that one. They basically fundraise by blaming other people for the problems. And then Paul, uh, Saul, sorry, gets so bad. He puts unrealistic demands on the people. In fact, at one moment, he's about to go to war and he demands that all the men fast right before the war. And they do it. And they're exhausted and they're hungry and they're starving and they fight this battle without having eaten. And, and Saul puts them under a vow for his own glory. Verse 24 of 1 Samuel 14. And the men of Israel had been hard-pressed that day, so Saul had laid an oath on the people saying, Cursed 
be the man who eats food until it is evening, and I am avenged on my enemies. So none of the people tasted food. I mean, look at who Saul becomes, this egotistical, self-serving leader of God's people. It's about my enemies, and no one's going to eat until I get what I want. Instead of feeding and serving God's people, he's starving them and abusing them. And the story goes on. His own son, Jonathan, sees that his father is way off, and he actually takes a scoop of honey and eats it. And then it comes to Saul's attention that his son, Jonathan, ate the honey, broke the vow. Guess what Saul is willing to do? He's willing to kill his own son. He says, bring Jonathan here and kill him before me. And the people are like, are you nuts? This is your son. And by the way, he's one of our best warriors. See, this is what happens when we try to get a king who will serve our purposes. He becomes just like us. He becomes self-serving himself. Saul then disobeys the word of the Lord to destroy the Amalekites. This is another story. In 1 Samuel 15, God said, go and destroy them thoroughly, dedicate them to oblivion to me. They are to be wiped out. And I could make an argument for holy war in another episode, but that's what God says. And Saul kind of obeys. He goes in and he wins the battle, but he saves the best of the sheep, the lambs, the goats, the produce of the land, and he even spares the king, Agag, as some kind of trophy to his own glory. And then this, look at this last verse as we deal with Saul's kingdom. 1 Samuel 15, 12, And Samuel rose early to meet Saul in the morning, and it was told Samuel, Saul came to Carmel, and behold, he set up a monument for himself and turned and passed on and went down to Gilgal. He built a monument to himself. (laughs) The king built a monument to himself. He's supposed to serve God's people. He ends up serving his own glory. It's incredible to see, isn't it, the parallels between Saul and our own day and age. These people that promise us the world because they pander to what we think we want as citizens. And then ultimately, they only serve their own interests and their own glory. I'm not saying that all of our political leaders do this, but I do think it's a part, a huge part of the political system of this country. I'm not saying don't vote either. I think you should vote. I think you should be a respectful and contributing citizen of this country. But you got to do more than vote. You got to do more than just hope that we get a good president. You got to see the times in which we live and then live accordingly as the salt of the earth and the light of the world as God's chosen people. See, you know who Saul represents? He represents the God of this world, Satan. You thought I was going to say some presidential figure. No, he represents the God of this world, Satan. Satan is the one who puts pressure and and demands on God's people. Satan is the one who seeks his own glory, who seeks to build a monument of himself. What monuments does he seek to build? The lives of lost souls of men and women and children. They're his monuments to his own glory that he was able to lead God's people away from God. He is demanding. He is self-centered, just like Saul. He'll kill his own son to serve his own interest. Do you see? First Samuel is actually pointing to a greater message, a greater story, our story. To that end, we enter into God's answer for a highly polarized, terribly divided nation of people who really don't know what they want. It is in this context of Saul's kingdom that David 
is anointed king. See, here's the good news, and it's really good news. The good news is that for ancient Israel and for us, God had a plan from before the moment Saul failed. See, Saul ultimately fails completely in 1 Samuel 15, but even way back in 1 Samuel 13, right after he's appointed king at the people's will, look what it says, 1 Samuel 13, 13, and Samuel said to Saul, you have done foolishly, you have not kept the command of the Lord your God with which he commanded you, for then the Lord would have established your kingdom over Israel forever, but now your kingdom shall not continue the Lord has sought out a man after his own heart, and the Lord has commanded him to be prince over his people because you have not kept what the Lord commanded you. Saul is the people's choice. David is God's choice. And in many ways, David is the anti-Saul. He loves the Lord. He serves and worships the Lord in private, and he will do so in public. He lives not for his own glory. He's willing to lay down his life for the sheep. As we get to know this young Rudy boy named David, we will find out that this man is pointing to the true Savior of our souls. The one we need as we live under the auspices of Satan. In a self-seeking, me-first generation, in a world filled with people who are all in it for themselves, thinking they know what they want and going and getting it at all costs, even if it hurts my relationships and destroys my community and separates me from my family, God says, I have a king of my own choosing who is anointed to save you from this kingdom of selfishness. Saul is impressive. He's tall. He's victorious at first. He's also completely driven by his own self-image and glory. David is rejected, is forgotten, is ostracized, is hated. And he rises to defeat our Goliath and win back our freedom. We need a king. The question that I end this episode with is this. Which king is yours? We need a king. We're going to have a king. We're going to follow someone. We're going to follow Saul, a kingdom rooted in self-centeredness, a kingdom rooted in demanding from other people. Give me what I think is mine. That's the kingdom of Saul. My rights, my identity, my glory, my money, my body, my rights. I mean, this, this is Saul. This is Saul, ladies and gentlemen. Disobedient to God, I'll do what I want. And if God happens to align with what I want, well, then I'll be okay with that. Or I'll just formulate a God of my own imaginations. This is the kingdom of Saul. Seeking your own glory, your own fame, your own notoriety. Like me. Follow me. Be my friend. Pay attention to me. This is the kingdom of Saul. This is the world we live in. Or is your king David? Others-centered. Giving willing to put his life on the line in the battle against Goliath. He's obedient to God. He seeks the glory of God. Which king is yours? That's the question that we're going to answer in this season of the deep end. This is why it matters for us today. This story 
is our story. And in the year of intensified electoral arguments and disputes, I can't think of a better place to go than the story of King David. I want to end with the reading of Psalm 2. Because Psalm 2, in many respects, represents God's perspective over all of our political craziness and all the panderings and postulations of the world in which we live, where people are demanding a king that they want and maybe getting it. Here's God's perspective. Psalm 2, verse 1. Why do the nations rage and the people's plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves, and rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. In other words, let's get away from God. Verse 4. He who sits in the heavens laughs. The Lord holds them in derision. Then he will speak to them in his wrath and terrify them in his fury, saying, As for me, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. I will tell the decree. The Lord said to me, You are my son. Today I have begotten you. Ask of me, and I will make the nations your heritage and the ends of the earth your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. Now, therefore, O kings, be wise. Be warned, O rulers of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the son lest he be angry and you perish in the way, for his wrath is quickly kindled. Blessed are all who take refuge in him. You know what that psalm is saying? It's saying, let the nations rage. Let the rulers be what they are, self-centered, demanding, egotistical, glory-seeking people. God has chosen his king. His king is the son of David, Jesus. And if you put your life in his hands... You're blessed. Are you ready for season four of The Deep End? I am. I'm so excited. I can't wait to start this series, get this season going with you next week as we continue this story, The Life of David. Follow us on all of our social media pages and check out the brand new website, thedeepend.tv. Like us on Facebook. I know I just said that this is actually self-seeking, but I'd like you to do it for your own spiritual edification so that you can get the content. Follow us on our social media pages and do all the things I told you not to do, basically. But not for your glory, not for our glory, but for your edification and your betterment. I hope, as always, that this content helps you, and I hope to see you next week on The Deep End. Thanks for joining us for this week's episode of The Deep End. We pray it helps you grow in your faith and your walk with Christ. If you don't already have a home church, we invite you to come out to one of our campuses this weekend. Check us out at waterschurch.org to find a location near you and a service time that fits your schedule. Make sure to stay tuned for next week's episode of The Deep End with Tim Hatch.